Good evening and welcome to WMMT's Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Parker Hobson. April is National Poetry Month, so tonight we dedicate our entire program to the renowned Eastern Kentucky author, James Still. Mr. Still was a longtime resident of Knott County. He was perhaps most well-known for the 1940 novel River of Earth, but he was a prolific writer of not just novels, but poems and short stories as well. He passed away in 2001, but the impact of his work on Appalachian literature has been immeasurable and continues to this day. Tonight, we'll hear Mr. Stowe reading from original works of fiction and poetry from a recording made in the 1970s. But we begin the program with an extended interview with Mr. Stowe that was done by Apple Shop's Judy Jennings back in 1991. Here's Judy. Okay, this is Judy Jennings, and it's August 19th. Monday, August 19th, and we're at the Apple Shop in the Apple Shop studio here in Whitesburg talking to James Still, Appalachian writer and poet. Um, Mr. Still, I think you were born in Alabama, is that right? Well, yes. <laughs> what part and when are you going to tell? Well, East Central, somewhat. Uh-huh. Still in the hills uh-huh. between the uh, Buckalo Mountains to the south and the Talladega Mountains to the north. And from our farm, we could see, I mean, the highest hill, I could see the Talladega Mountains, and he used to wonder about them as a boy. Oh, yeah? The mountains, what was in there? And what, what did you wonder about? Like, what it would be like to live there? Well, to go there, to go anywhere. I spent a great deal of time wanting to travel, to go someplace. And it didn't occur to me that someday I would be able to. And when I would hear a train in the night say, whistle blow, I would have a kind of a yearning to be on it. Now, let's see. I think you were born in 1906. Is that 1906, right? and that was 85 years ago. Um, so you had grew up reading a lot of books? Well, they were, no, I didn't, uh, alas. And that might, in the long run, have helped, because by the time I got two books, I was absolutely starved for them. I had just enough of them to crave uh, uh, books to read. I knew there was a big world out there, and I wanted to know more about it. So what kind of school did you go to? It was a good school for that day. It was the town school, the city school of Fed. We lived two miles out of town, and we walked in. It was very roomy with an auditorium, and I don't remember a library. It may have had one, but that might have uh, teachers that was considered superior to those in the country schools. And the best teacher I ever had was my first grade teacher. She was a hands-on teacher. She, she involved you in what you were doing. My, my first day in school, she handed me an ear of corn, and she wrote my name on the desk with a, with a piece of chalk, and I was to outline my name with grains of corn, which I did many times over. And before that day was over, I knew the shape of my name, and I could write it. Well, so you had a pretty um, happy family, childhood family. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I don't, I don't remember any uh, 
traumas or no I don't not any I don't remember any of them yeah do you think did you consider yourself sort of fortunate or you just thought everybody I think everybody would have had something that's why I think there's no substitute for southern boyhood if they are like mine everybody's not like mine I'm sure but I think my cousins uh, first cousins anyway lived somewhat the same sort of life I think they did well, what made you decide to go to Lincoln Memorial? Oh, I got to, there really was no chance of my going to school. This is Depression days. I was going to say, times were getting tough about then, weren't they? Uh, my father was being paid in chickens and pigs and hogs and cows and whatever. People didn't have the money. We got along somehow. I was the uh, office boy in the in summer at the mill. It was a building uh, near the great factory, which is still there. It makes towels. Nowadays, Martex, Westmore towels, and many other kinds. And I remember distinctly, there was a uh, tool room, uh, supply room under the factory, underground. And I used to go in there. I liked it when they'd see me there. I liked to go under the weave. With the overhead was a hundred looms or more. Who knows how many slamming away? The motors were down, hanging above the head, my head. And when I heard many years later, Stravinsky's "Rites of Spring," <laughs> I knew I'd heard it before, many times. And I heard great music. I used to pause there. And used to wonder about that. I was hearing organ music. I was hearing Wagner, you know, just slamming and humming and a great deal of humming and, you know, these motors were making. Um, well, then um, I had a teacher. He had some catalogs one day, a catalog of Lincoln Memorial University, and he put it on the desk, said, anybody wants to look at it? And I took it, and I read in it and and saw that people could work their way school school. And that summer I earned $60. I saved every penny of it, and I went. And that's all the money they ever got out of me. <laughs> and when I left there, uh, after graduating, they owed me 75 we were, I worked. I had nothing, literally nothing. Um, it was a pretty far way to go away from home. Were it, you was, nervous? it was quite a way. And I remember, but I was just delighted to go to school. I was, I was kind of a boredom in high school. Not really that, but not uh, my teachers, alas. Uh, I didn't know anything much. They were not readers, and we just had a little textbook work, and that was all, as I remember. So when I Lincoln went to Lincoln Memorial, that was the kind of school I needed, where you had personal attention. Only about four, well, eight hundred, I believe, students at the time, and rather dedicated teachers in a way, but not scholars as we know them today. As I came to know scholars later. But they, I think, were just about what I needed. And they took a personal interest in you. The first year, 
I worked in the rock we in the rock car in the afternoon, school in the mornings, rock car in the afternoon. Everybody worked. And uh, then at night, at nine o'clock, I was in, went to the library and I was a janitor. And I used to lock the door at nine o'clock, sweep the floors, empty the wastebasket, rub up the tables, and then it belonged to me. Um, I was like a child in a candy store. I didn't know what to read first. It was an overwhelming experience for me uh, to have all these books and magazines. And I found a lot of authors for myself, for example, um, Conrad. No teacher introduced me to him. Uh-uh. Hardy, no. Did you do any writing while you were at the... Yeah, mm-hmm. yes, I began to write little things. Um, sure did. I discovered the Atlantic Monthly, which was, at that time, uh, the most prestigious publication still up there nowadays, but it has some rivals. And the this school received many missionary barrels, you know, full of clothes and things and so on. I don't remember ever having, getting any of it. But uh, they also sent sometime years of, of issues of magazines and especially get them to Atlantic. So I don't know how many to get a year for years, say all through the teens say, uh, I was supposed to check the files and if there's one missing, put it in and to burn the rest, put them in the furnace. So I saved them. And in summer, at least one summer I remember distinctly, there being no work during the Depression, I spent the summer practically eating those. I read everything, and I decided I wanted to write for the Atlantic. Um, so did you join the service after? Uh... Well, well, I was out of, had no work. But nobody had any for that matter. Yeah, that would have been right at the end oh, of the Oh, I traveled, going around, trying to find, I was on the road, hitchhiking, well, I had a little money. I'd ride buses, maybe. Uh, I remember being on a freight train once when there was a number of uh, veterans of World War One going to Washington, the Bonus Army, they called them. I remember that. I remember going into Atlanta, and uh, the word somebody got back that we, they were police ahead, and we all jumped off that moving train out of College Park. I tried to get to work at Sears Roebuck and Signed up for an agency for a job, no, nothing. I went up to Rome, tried to get a job in a, a factory that made stoves. Well, uh, as I have said, those were rather humbling years in a way, but valuable to me because I saw something in the world I wouldn't have seen at, bad, at, at a times that were what it was really like. I had the feeling then it would never be otherwise. And uh, then, though, this this uh, teacher, the librarian at Lincoln Memorial, uh, it turned out there was a scholarship which she got for me, and he paid the rest there somewhere or another uh, in library science up in the University of Illinois. She engineered that. I never thought to be a librarian, but it was something to do, you see. There's no work. So I went on, and 
he made it a little better then. I did my thesis under under the Chaucer scholar Walter Clyde Curry. Uh, that was a one of the most marvelous and punishing and cruel <laughs> courses I ever took, and most rewarding in the long run. And Chaucer happens to be the only author that I totally relate to. I feel I knew him. I sometimes feel that I am Chaucer. And may I say, last week I ordered a my Canterbury Tales and got away from it. I ordered one last week. So you came down to, was Heinemann your first job? As uh, the way I came back from Westville, Illinois, I stopped at Nashville. There was one of my classmates who lived, who was in there in Vanderbilt, going to school religion. He asked me to come to Knott County with his brother-in-law. Well, it happened that Hammond Settlement needed a librarian. And so they hired me. And so I came. When I say they hired me, I was what they call a volunteer worker. I was involuntarily a volunteer worker. I would have been delighted to have a salary. But their endowment was in stocks and bonds, and they weren't paying much. And they couldn't pay us, the teachers. They did feed us and, and house us. And for the, that day and time, many a man would have been happy to have that much. When that was in the late 1930s? That was, I came in 32. Oh, early 1930s. 32, yes, 32. Well, was it isolated and wild then, or was it pretty much like places you've the been road, before? The road, I was told, that came from Hazard to Heinemann uh, had just been paved so a car could go over it. There was no bridge in town. There had been one, but it had been washed out. To cross the creek, you either stepped on rocks, which sometimes if it was low enough, and sometimes there was a plank there, and sometimes there was a jumping pole. And I really had come to the jumping off place. From Heinemann, wagon roads uh, served the rest of the county. Ruts, nearly knee-deep some places. And the settlement school uh, was, was really a little New England uh, island to speak. The teachers were mostly women. They were mostly graduates of Wellesley during the years I was there from Wellesley College. Uh, and some came from Smith, Bryn Mawr, Mount Holyoke. Uh, Well-educated young women and uh, highly motivated. And the library uh, was surely the best library in any school, um, secondary school in the state. And I can't imagine any other school in the state of Kentucky having such a staff as this one had. And uh, and the uh, and the facilities such as we had. Well, did you live at Hanman Settlement School? I did. Uh, I stayed uh, 
I had nothing in the way, nothing, not a dime. I couldn't mail a letter even. And to our jobs, anybody, you see, we had those 100 students on our hands seven days a week. So just being a teacher, a librarian or whatever your job was, just a part of it, you had to, for example, I had those boys in my hands weekend, I mean, take them on hikes or uh, to the ball court to play or so I look at that sort of thing. We just took it for granted. Everybody worked. It was around the clock. It was a very busy time, I'll tell you. Or study halls in the evening, though I never kept one. But anyhow, all that time, I was reading and began thinking about writing, but not writing. And one day, I was 26 years old. One Saturday morning, I well, no, I wrote a poem, wrote some poems. And I sent them to Atlantic, and they came back. And then they did accept one. And then I wrote, in fact, they published three in time. Then I wrote a story, which they published. I thought it was a story. It, they published it as an article because it has none of the attributes of a short story. And it became the first chapter of the novel River of Earth later. So I had written, I, I received no pay for three years. When I averaged it out, after six years, I had received an average of six cents a day. So as I tell it, I retired. I was so rich. I went over on Dead Mare Branch, nine miles over a wagon road and one mile up a creek bed to the Amberge Log House, a structure that was built in uh, 1837. Not a cabin, as people call it, a very substantial log house, two stories. It was between the waters of Dead Mare and Woolpin Creek facing Little Car Creek with the mountains rising behind. I went in June, a little late for planting a garden, but I did plant one, and as the frost held off, I had a pretty pretty good garden. And I began to uh, visit my neighbors and get to know people and uh, go down to the church meetings, weekends, uh, once a month rather. And I went to uh, candy pulling sometimes and pie suppers at the, at, at the schoolhouse and helped my neighbors and they helped me. And I also uh, dried apples and canned stuff and for myself and hold up potatoes and cabbages. I got a, stand, a couple stands of bees and and then I, I ate. My neighbor asked me to come out and, and uh, eat with him. So I ate my evening meal five nights a week with them and sort of became their family, part of the family. So then the war came, and I was drafted, and off I went. Now, did River of Earth come out before It you did, got published in 1940. And um, I know that you said some people that around you didn't know about it, but it made quite a stir in the outside world, didn't it? Yes, it had reviews, good ones, time 
magazine called it a work of art. It was reviewed by the New York Times Book Review and just everywhere, Atlantic and New Yorker and Scribner's and places where books, you know, get reviewed. And uh, with no exception, uh, the reviews are good. So uh, was River of mm. Earth based on a family that you knew, or is it more of a general one, picture? Uh, one of the summers there at Hyman, no school in summer, I was asked to uh, take the place of the social worker, F-E-R-E-A, Federal Emergency Relief Administration. All summer I was a social worker. I had uh, a, a, let's see, the southwest area of the whole county, miles of walking. So all summer I walked, except one place uh, on Quicksand, I used to hire a little horse, a little crippled horse. But mostly I walked, visited families who invited me, you know, who, who wanted to uh, help, and but I would go to their homes and look in their meal barrels and, and see how many chickens they had and how many legs they got and look at their gardens and see what the general situation was in the family and and travel all week and I put this down in in composition books each family each visit well uh, really out of this came the book those composition books are in Moorhead State University in the so-called James Thiel room there if anybody wants to look at them that's really where it came from you really get to know the lifestyle of people. Oh, yeah, yes. Uh-huh. And how they said, how they thought, and one way or another. Uh, uh, none of these characters are real. I never could write about a real person, but they, in a sense, they have somewhat a prototype. The little boy who narrates it is undoubtedly a little boy who was at Hindman, uh, William Lee Parks. He was about 10. Uh, he came from a fine family over in Lesson County. His father worked for the Georgia-Kentucky uh, Power Company. And I used to wonder why there were two boys, just two boys in his family, why such a delightful child uh, that they would let him be away from home, you know. I knew the family. I used to go there. They invite me to come with, stay weekend with them. I would. I knew them. But I, I, anyway, one day he would ask. He would ask the uh, house mother for permission to come come in and visit me in my room. See, they weren't really allowed to bother me. These students, and she let him come, and he come in and tell me things, and I I became a kind of a father to him, you know, to him. And he always treated me like I was his parents. One day he was, I was sitting at the typewriter and he came in and he started telling me at times he, he said he liked to got killed. He had many narrow accidents, narrow, uh, narrow chances of life, like a log almost rolled over him once and all kinds of things. And uh, as he Told it, I just typed it. And then when the Courier Journal had a 
anniversary, 100 years old or 150 or something, uh, and asked me for something, I sent this to them, and it was reprinted. It's called I Like to Got Killed. Alas, this boy uh, went on, went to college, was in the Army in Australia, came back and was in medical school at UK, where he was home, uh, and he was, he was in the car with somebody, and uh, it had an accident. He was killed. He did die at last, see? Um, so you've written a lot of poems, or I don't, I mean, I've, I've appreciated a lot of the poems you've written since, um, what, 50s and 60s? You always wrote poems. Your first things were poems, but a lot of the reading hmm, that you do yeah. are in poetry. You, you um, prefer pro, uh, verse? I, no, I don't prefer either. Uh, I would write more if I preferred to be a writer. Um, no, I don't write, I wrote poems when I, when I could not do it, when an idea comes in and keeps bothering me, and I write it to get rid of it. And some of the stories bothered me, and I wrote them and got rid of them. Do you use the notebooks? And when you do your poems, do they ever suggest I have images? never no. looked in notebooks to write it, fix it in memory. If, if, if I need it, it comes forward by itself. I never forced myself into write anything. And nothing happens. There are times when I, I couldn't write a note to the milkman. Uh, and once in a while I get in a state of free association. That's the best description I can give it, which I can write anything. You know, I can I can just it just goes. I don't look back, I just just type away. Um you said you weren't sure there is an Appalachia. Do you think in one one of your quotes I read, you said if there is an Appalachia. Um, but a lot of your poems, especially Heritage, are very seem to be very rooted in Appalachia. Yeah, they yeah, they they are. Uh their place sense of place is very strong there, I think, as people have noted. At the writing, I don't think about that. I'm not writing Appalachian stories. I'm just writing something I know or want to tell. I'm a storyteller. I will say the writing of poetry uh, trained me to write prose. I think uh, just speaking of, of, say, a short story, every sentence should advance that piece of fiction. No static or dead sentences there. And more than that, it should be a kind of, every poem should have almost the value of a line of poetry. Uh, it, it should carry some burden beyond what it's saying. And I think a story or poem should be more than the, than, uh, the collection of its parts. And the readers have to meet me halfway, however. As I think every author hopes they will. Um, well, what are you writing now? Are you going to tell? You usually won't tell me. <laughs> uh, I think anybody who, people sometimes ask me, well, have you just, you, have you run out of material? And I say, I, uh, I couldn't live long enough to even hardly scratch the surface. 
about every three days, I think of a new book I want to write. And I really uh, am somewhat plagued by unwritten things. I have a lot of ideas, but I think it's psychologically bad to even mention something you plan to do specifically or might be doing. But you're, um, I know that um, When I Get to Heaven was a pretty fairly new poem, wasn't it? It is. Yeah, so whenever uh, one just grabs hold of you have to write it, that's when you write it, huh? Well, I, I, I just had the title for two, three years. And one day I came in from somewhere and from a trip into Heinemann and just went in to get my things together to go over on, on my log house. And I was tired, worn out and everything, and all of a sudden I knew what that, sudden I knew there's a poem there, but I knew if I didn't put it down, it would never get down. I have written many poems in, in the at night in my head that never got printed. So I went in there again under protest and wrote it fast as I could write it, left it on the typewriter and walked out. And that was when I get to heaven. And yeah, and when I came back Monday, uh, I saw it and typed it out. Didn't change it. I, I must have made a little. I don't. I don't know. What the, I don't. Usually a thing comes out. I see it pretty well. Maybe a comma, period change, or sometimes a word. What do you think, Rich? Anything we've forgotten? Can't think of anything about you. We got. Think you got anything? Well, that's about. I think about all. That's, uh, that's about all it. I know, and more too. <laughs> <laughs> That was James Stone, speaking with Apple Shop's Judy Jennings and Rich Kirby in 1991. Up next, we'll hear Mr. Stowe reading a selection of his own work from a TV program produced in the 1970s by Mountain Community Television in Southwest Virginia. This footage was preserved by the Apple Shop archive. In this clip, we'll hear Mr. Stowe read his short story, A Ride on the Short Dog, as well as several poems. currently living up a little hollow over in eastern Kentucky called Dead Mare. Um, to put it quite simply, he's probably the finest rider in the mountains today and one of the finest in America. Right on the short dog. Ever heard of it? No. <coughs> it's been around, though, a little bit. It's in a number of textbooks. And and luckily, it got in Best American Short Stories one year. Mr. Williams, can you hear? Can you hear? You can? If not, why don't you take the seat here? Come on up. No. <clears throat> there used to be a bus over in uh, going from Hindman over to uh, Vico. You all know about Vico, don't you? And uh, it was a sort of a uh, connecting bus for the Greyhound. It's long uh, been discontinued. And maybe the Greyhound, too. I don't know. And we called it the short dog because of the short trip. We flagged the bus on a curve at the mouth of Laird's Creek by jumping and waving in the road. And D. Buck Engel had to tread the brake the instant he saw us. He wouldn't have halted unless compelled. 
Mal Dow and I leaped aside finally, but Goaty Spurlock held his ground. The bus stopped a yard from Goaty, and vexed faces pressed the windows, and we heard old Liz Hyden cry, I'd not haul them Jaspers. <laughs> D-Buck opened the door and blared, you boys trying to get killed? We climbed on grinning and shoved Ferris to Roscoe into his hand, and for once we didn't sing out to Knuckle Junction and Pistol City and Two Hoots. We even strode the aisle without raising elbows to knock off hats. <laughs> Having agreed among ourselves to sort of behave and make certain of a ride home. Yet D-Buck was wary. He warned to bother my passengers, you fellows, and I'll fix you. I'll put up with your mischief till I won't. That set Goaty and Mal laughing, for D-Buck was a bluffer. We took the seat across from Liz Hyden, and on wedging into it, my bruised arm started aching. Swapping licks with Goaty was Goaty's delight. The bus wheeled and jolted in moving away, yet we spared D-Buck our usual advice, like feed her a biscuit and see what she meant, and twist her tail and teach her a few manners. The vehicle was... <laughs> The vehicle was scarcely half the length of regular buses. That is, the short dog everybody called it. It traveled from Thacker to Roscoe and back twice a day. Enos Webb occupied the seat in front, and Gordy greeted, Hey, old chum, how's your fat? <laughs> Enos tucked his head, fearing a rabbit lick, and he changed his seat. He knew how Gordy served exposed necks. <laughs> Goaty could cause you to see forked lightning and hear thunderbolts. Though others shunned us, Liz Hyden gazed in our direction. Her eyes were scornful, her lips puckered sour. She was as old as a hill. Goaty and Mal couldn't sit idle. They rubbed the dusty panes with their sleeves and looked abroad, and everything they saw they remarked on. Hay Doodles and Lonzo Tate's pasture, a crazy chimney leaning over from a house, Long John's own clotheslines, and they kept account of the bridges. They pointed toward the mountain ahead, trying to fool everybody, saying, Hey, look, look yonder, look yonder. But they couldn't trick a soul. My arm throbbed, and I had no notion to prank. And after a while, Gordy muttered, I want to know what's eating you. We'd better decide what we can do in town, I grasped. Roscoe folks looked, looked alive at sight of us, and except for our return fare, we hadn't a dime. The pool room had us ousted, <laughs> and we'd have to steer clear of the courthouse where sheriffs were thick. And we dared not rouse the county prisoners again. <laughs> on, our, on our last trip, we bellowed in front of the jail, Hell, you wife beaters, how are you standing the time? <laughs> we jeered and mocked until they had begged the turnkey to fetch us inside. They'd notch our ears, they'd trim us. The turnkey had told them to be patient. We'd get in on our own hook. <clears throat> Gordy said, uh, we'll break loose in town. Said, no way, no two ways of talking. 
and I gloom. The law will pin us for the least thing. We'll be thrown in amongst the meanest fellows that ever breathe. And Gordy screwed his eyes narrow. My opinion, the prisoner scared you plumb. You're a runt for trick pulling. He nodded a fist and hit me squarely on my bruise. My arm ached the fiercer. My eyes burned, and had I not glanced sidewise, ways they'd have come to worse. Now I know I said, but Gordy's charge was true. Well, act like it, he said, and pay me. And I returned the blow. <clears throat> Old Liz was watching, and she blurted, I swear to my gracious, a human being can't see a minute's peace. And Gordy chuckled, What's fretting you, old woman? Knock and beat and battle is all you think on, she snorted. Ah, we not so bad we tried to hinder people from riding on the bus, he countered. Uh, we heard you squall back yonder. And old Liz's lips quivered and her veiny hands trembled. Did I have strength to reach, she croaked, I'd pop your jaws. I'd addle you totally. Gordy thrust his head across the aisle and turned to cheek. He didn't mind a slap. See your satisfaction, he, he invited. Out of my face, she ordered, lifting her voice to alert D-Buck. She laced her fingers to stay there shaking. D-Buck adjusted the rearview mirror and inquired, What's the matter, Aunt Liz? It's these boys tormenting me, she complained. They drive a body to raving. D-Buck slowed. I told you, fellows. What are we done now? Goaty asked injuredly. Didn't I say not bother my passengers? I never tipped the old hen. <laughs> One more annick and off you go, the three of you. Goaty smirked. Know what, he said? We've been treating you pretty, and we've done no good. Suit a grunt box, you can't. You heard me, D-Buck said. And when the passenger climbed on to the mouth of Willow Branch, he called Aunt Besh. How are you, Auntie? And uh, doing no good, said Aunt Besh. <clears throat> the twins got on at Lucas. They were about nine years old and as like as two peas and had not a hair on their heads. Their paws were shaven clean. And Gordy Cherub said, Cherub said, gee, oh, look who's a coming. And he beckoned them to a place quitted by Enos Webb. D-Buck, though, seated the two up front. And Gordy vowed, uh, I'll trap the little chubs. Just you wait. And he made donkey ears with his hands and braid. The twins stared, their mouths open. Mal said, why don't we have our noggins peeled? <laughs> Say we do, laughed Gordy. Uh, cocking a teasing eye on me. They can't jail us for that, surely. And I replied, we are broke as gas grasshoppers, said keep that in mind. It didn't take Goldie long to entice the twins. He picked nothings out of the air and chewed them, and chewed them to match a sheep eating ivy. He feigned to pull teeth, pitched them up again, pitched them again into his mouth uh, and, to, and to swallow them. The twins stole a seat closer, the better to see. And then two more. Directly, go to head them where he wanted. And he said, Hey, old dirty ears. 
The twins nodded, too shy to answer. What's you little men's name, he asked. They swallowed timidly, their eyes meeting. Ah, tell. Woodrow ventured one. Jethro, said the other. They were Solomon's fire pokers. Hustling to a store to spend a couple of nickels, I bet. Going to Cowan, said one. To Grandpa, said his image. Well, who skinned you alive, I want to know. Pap, they said. And Goaty gazed at their skulls, mischief tingling him. He declared us fellows aimed to get cut ball in Roscoe. Too, too hot to wear hair nowadays. I slipped a hand over my bruise and crabbed. I reckon you know haircuts cost money in town. Plaguing Goaty humored me. Witless, Goaty said, annoyed. We'll climb into the chairs, and when the barber's finished, we'll say charge it to the sandbank. <laughs> Led summons the law and I bet. Idiot, he snapped. People can't be jailed for a debt. Yet he wouldn't all pause to argue. He addressed the twins. You little gents have me uh, pretty uneasy. There are swellings on your noggins, and I'm worried on your behalf. The twins rubbed their crowns. They were as smooth as goose eggs. Go to sharp on this head business, said Mal. Want me to examine you and find your ailment? Asked Goaty. The twins glanced one to the other. We don't care, said one. Goaty tipped a finger to their heads. He squinted and frowned. And then he drew back and gasped, uh-oh. He punched Mal and bled. You see what I see? Horns if I ever saw them. <laughs> the Tom Truth, Mal swore. Sprouting horns like bully cows, Goaty said, budding under the hide and ready to pip. Uh, they're in a bad way, Mal moaned. In the fix of a boy on Lot's Creek, Goaty said, he growed horns and he turned into a brute and went hooking, folks. <laughs> mean, upon my one word and honor, the bad man wouldn't claim him. Yeah, and a fellow Scuddy had the disease, mal-related, kept shut up in a barn he was, and they fed him hay and cornstalks, and he never tasted vittles. I saw him myself, I swear to my thumb. Saw him chewing a cud and heard him bawl a big ball. <laughs> Goaty sighed. The only cure is to deaden the nubs before they break the skin. <laughs> and G.O., your lucky mal poured on. Goaty Spurlock's a horn doctor. Cured a hundred, I reckon. Oh, I'll treat a few, admitted Goaty. Oh, I'll spare the little master's pled mal. D-Buck was trying to watch the, both the road and the mirror, his head bobbing like a chicken drinking water. <laughs> Old Liz's eyes glinted darkly. I poked the goatee, grumbling. Didn't we promise to mind ourselves? But he went on. Well, they may enjoy old long hookers. They may want to bellow and snort and hoof up, hoof up dirt. We don't neither, a twin denied. Goatee brightened. Want me to dehorn you? <laughs> The boys nodded. Though I prodded Goaty's ribs, he ignored me. 
He told the twins, the quicker the medicine, the better the cure. And he made short work of it. Without more ado, he clapped a hand on each of the heads, drew them wide apart, and bumped them together. <laughs> the brakes began to screech. <laughs> and old Liz to fill the bus with her groans. The twins sat blinking. <laughs> D-Buck halted in the middle of the road and commanded, All right, you scamps, pile off. We didn't stir. You're not deep. Trot. Beep in one ear and can't hear other than Goldie said. <laughs> D-Buck slapped his, his knee with his cap. I said go. Old Liz was in the fidget. Call on drag him off, old Liz taunted. A coward, are ye? Anybody spoiling the tussle, go to challenge, well, let him come a humping. D-Buck flared. Listen, you devils, I can put a quiet on you and not have to soil my hands. In my opinion, you'll not want to be aboard when I pull into town. I can draw up at the courthouse and fetch the law in two minutes. Sick of sheriff on us, Goldie said, and you, you'll wish to your heart you hadn't. We paid to ride this dog. Walk off and I'll return your fares. Now no. I won't wait all day. Dynamite couldn't budge. D-Buck swept his cap under his head. He changed gear, ready to leave. I'm willing to spare you and you won't have it. Drive on, big buddy. <laughs> the bus started and old Liz flounced angrily in her seat. She turned her back and didn't look around until she got to until we got to Roscoe. We crossed two bridges. We passed Hilton and Chunk Jones's sawmill and Gayhart and Thorne. And beyond Thorne the highway began to rise. We climbed past the bloom of coal veins and tipples of mines hanging the slopes. We mounted until we gained the saddle of the gap and could see Roscoe four miles distant. Gordy and Mal cut up the whole way, no longer trying to behave. They hailed newcomers with, take a seat and sit like, uh, like you're at home where you ought to be. And sped the departers with, I'll see you later when I can talk to you straighter. The twins left at Cowan, and Gordy shouted, Goodbye, dirty ears. Recollect I done you a favor. We rolled through the high gap and on down the mountain. You fixed this, I accused bitterly, Gordy bitterly, and I openly covered my crippled arm. Gordy scoffed. D-Buck can't panic me. You watch him turn good fellow by the time we reach town. Just watch him unloading the square the same as usual. I know what suits, he knows what suits his hide. And he grabbed loose my arm and his fist shot out. It was too much. My face tore up, my lips quivered, and tears smeared my cheeks. Goaty stared in wonder, his mouth fell open. Now Mal took my part, rebuking him. I no use to injure people. I don't give knocks I can't take myself, Goldie said. And he invited me. Said, pay me double. Hit me a rabbit lick. I don't care. 
Make me see lightning. He leaned forward and bared his neck. I wiped the shameful tears, thinking John to join no more and go at his game. Whap him and even up, Mal said. We're near to the bottom of the mountain. Level up with me, said Goldie, or you know a crony of mine. Well, you'll not run with my bunch. I shook my head. Hurry, said Mal, I see town smoking. I wouldn't. Mal advised Goldie, Nedlins, say a thing you can't let pass. Make him mad. Goldie said, know what I'm in the opinion of? Hadn't it been for Mal and me, you'd let D-Buck bounce you off the bus and never lifted a finger. You'd have turned chicken. I'd not, I go. Jolty, Mal urged, what I'd do. You're a chicken leg, Goldie said, and everybody akin to you is a chicken leg, and if you're yellow enough to take that, I'll call you chicken leg here and after. <laughs> I couldn't get Goldie, get around Goldie. Smite him, I must. And I gripped a fist and struck as hard as I could in close quarters, mauling his chest. Is that your best, he belittled? Anyhow, anyhow, didn't I call for a rabbit lick? Throw one and let me feel it. Said, throw one else you know what your name is. Again, he leaned and exposed his neck. He's begging, Mal incited. I'd satisfy him, I resolved. And I half rose to get elbow room. I swung mightily, my fist striking the base of his skull. I made his head pitch upward and thump the seat board. I made his teeth grate. That ought to do it, I grated, blurted. Goaty walled his eyes and clenched his jaws. He began to gasp and strain and flounder. His arms lifted, clawing the air. Tight as he was wedged, we were wedged in the seat. The seat would hardly hold him. Mal was ready to back up the sham and he chortled. Hey, you fellow said, you want to see a fellow croak? <laughs> Nobody bothered to look. Then Mal and me noticed the odd twist of Goaty's neck. We saw his lips tinge. His ears turned tallow. His tongue waggled to speak and could not. And of a, of a sudden, we knew and sat frozen. We sat like posts while he heaved and pitched and his soles rattled the floor and his knees banged the forward seat. He bucked like a spoiled nag. <clears throat> he quieted presently. His arms fell, his hands crumpled, he slumped and his gullet rattled. We rode on. The mountain fell aside and the curve straightened. The highway ran a beeline. We crossed the last bridge and drew into Roscoe, halting in the square. D-Buck stood at the door while the passengers alighted and all hastened except old Liz and us. Old Liz ordered over her shoulder, go ahead, you fellas. I'll not trust a set of Jaspers coming behind me. We didn't move. She whirled and her eyes lit on Goaty. She sputtered. What's the matter with him? Mal opened his mouth numbly. He's doing no good, he said.
I was born humble. At the foot of mountains, my face was set upon the immensity of earth and stone, and upon oaks full-bodied and old. There is so much writ upon the parchment of leaves, so much of beauty blown upon the winds, I can but fold my hands and sink my knees in the lead pages. Under the mute trees, I have cried with this scattering of knowledge. Beneath the flight of birds, shaken with this waste of wings, I was born humble. My heart grieves beneath this wealth of wisdom perished with the leaves. And this is an old <clears throat> character, a man who used to live in my country. I never knew him. He died before I came along. But I used to hear so much about him that I could uh, see him almost. And his name was Uncle Ambrose. Everybody called him Uncle Ambrose. <clears throat> Your hair is growing long, Uncle Ambrose. <laughs> And the strands of your beard are like willow sprays hanging over Troublesome's Creek breeze in August. Uncle Ambrose, your hands are heavy with years. See me with the axe heft, the plow's hewn stock, the thorn wound, and the stump dark bruise of time. Your face is a map of Knott County with hard ridges of flesh, the wrinkled creek beds, the traces and forks carved like wagon tracks on stone. And there is Troublesome's Valley struck violently by a barlow blade and the anticline of all waters this side of the Kentucky River. Your teeth are dark stained apples on an ancient tree and your eyes, the trout pools between the narrow hills. Your hands are glacial drifts of stone cradled on a mountaintop. One is big ball mountain, rock ribbed and firm. One, the Appalachian Range from Maine to Alabama. Though I was not born in these hills, here, local, I was born in, in the hills. And I have said, I shall not leave these prisoning hills, though they topple their barren heads to level earth, and the forests slide uprooted out of the sky. Though the waters of troublesome, of trace fork, of Sand Lake rise in a single body to glean the valleys, to drown lush penny royal, to unravel rail fences. Though the sunball breaks the ridges into dust, 
and burns its strength into the blistered rock, I cannot leave. I cannot go away. Being of these hills, being one with the fox stealing into the shadows, one with the newborn foal, the lumbering ox drawing green beech logs to mill, one with the destined feet of men, man climbing and descending, and one with death rising to bloom again, I cannot go. Being of these hills, I cannot pass beyond. I have gone out to the roads that go up and down in smooth white lines, stoneless and hard. I have seen distances shortened between two points, the hills pushed back, and bridges thrust across the shallow river's span to the broad highways, and back again I have come to the creek-fed roads and narrow winding trails worn into ruts by hoofs and steady feet. I have come back to the long way around, the far between, the slow arrival. Here is my pleasure most, where I have lived and called my home. Oh, do not wander far from the roof tree and the hill gathered earth. Go not upon these wayfares measured with a line drawn hard and white from birth to death. Oh, quiet and slow is peace and curved with space brought back home again to this homing place. One or two more. There have been hard times in the hills. People have lived often very difficult lives up these hollows. And I call this one Spring on Troublesome Creek. <clears throat> Not all of us were warm. Not all of us. We are winter lean. Our faces are sharp with cold. And there's a smell of wood smoke in our clothes. Not all of us were warm, though we hugged the fire through the long, chilled nights. We have come out into the sun again. We have untied our knot of flesh. We are no thinner than a hound or mare or an unleaved poplar. We have come through to the grass, to the cows calving in the lot. I went to buy apples at Hurricane Gap. I went for apples to sell and to barter. And oh, the high hills friendly to orchards. And oh, the fair trees sagging with riches. With stamen and wine sap, red spy and grimes golden. I looked and I wondered and I stood beholden. That trip I hauled home 200 bushels of melt in your mouth. I'll swallow your tongue. 200 bushels of tooth ticklers and green busters, grin busters.
200 measures of world wonders and sweet rusters. And oh, the trip was a sight to the world, the journey a worldly wonder. Again, that was James Stowe, recorded at a reading back in the 1970s. That audio came from footage preserved by the Apple Shop Archive as a part of the Mountain Community Television Collection. And that does it for tonight's show. Thanks so much for listening. For WMMT, I'm Parker Hobson. Have a great night.